We begin today what is session five of our course, The Leaven of Liturgy. We're going to cover calendar and collect today. And actually, in the midst of speaking about calendar and collect, there's a whole bunch of issues that arise. And so hopefully we'll be able to address all those and not run out of time. So we'll begin with prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Calendar and collect. But first of all, the propers. Those of you who weren't here last week will not remember me saying, give me my propers. Of course, this is Aretha Franklin. And when we were talking about propers, I was introducing you to the notion of minor propers. Um, And if you don't remember what that is, well, in relation to propers, which are what we're going to talk about today, minor propers, if you remember, were portions of the liturgy that could be added uh, but weren't included in the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, They were elements such as the introit, such as uh, the gradual and and, uh, uh, sometimes called the tract or the alleluia or the um, post-communion prayer or the secret prayer. Sounds very mysterious. These are uh, oftentimes called the minor propers, but the propers themselves are the collect, the epistle, and the gospel Set aside for each observed feast day, those are called the propers. And these are provided according to the calendar. And you notice that this used to always irritate me and, and, uh, until I opened a book and found out that the reason that <coughs> calendar is spelt with a K is not simply to be uh, obstinate. But when the, the word calendar was, was first used, I think it was always spelt with a K. But uh, as the... the the secular and religious worlds began to split somewhat. The religious calendar kept the K, and the secular calendar took on a C. That was supposed to help us to distinguish between the church calendar with a K and the uh, pagan calendar. Oh, I don't know, just the the regular the regular calendar that we find uh, at Hallmark bookstore or card store or something like that. Calendar with a K. But since the 4th century, the church has worked to make significant portions of the liturgy line up with seasons of the calendar. Now, before the 4th century, of course, uh, before Constantine, Edict of Milan, etc., the church was lucky to be meeting, let alone uh, have the freedom to establish a calendar and develop the calendar and affix portions of the liturgy and scriptures and colleagues uh, into those seasons. Of the calendar, but once the fourth century rolled around, it, uh, the process began. By the fourth century, there were certain seasons that were already observed: uh, Easter, of course, and then the preceding season of Lent. Uh, Christmas is a fourth century, and Advent, I believe, is fifth century of preparation for Christmas. But uh, January the sixth was observed, in a sense, as Feast of the Incarnation, but as Epiphany also. Uh, that had been in place already, but the calendar was starting to develop uh, more thoroughly in the 4th century. And you'll notice, uh, and this, these are words maybe you've heard before, temporale and sanctorale. You, you'll notice uh, there's a couple of elements of the church calendar um, 
that sometimes are, uh, you'll, you'll hear, uh, well, I'll show you some terms that we'll hear more often. For instance, fixed feast days, you've heard of those. Uh, those would be uh, according to sanctorale, and temporale would be feast days that move according, usually with where Easter is. So much of the church calendar moves according to the date of Easter, and this is temporale or the proper of time. These two calendars, sanctorale, temporale, are overlapping one another. And you're used to this, even though maybe you never thought about it in that way. Uh, For instance, if Easter is late in the year, it means there's going to be a long Epiphany tide. Epiphany will have one or two extra Sundays. And that means that on the other side of Easter, you're going to have less Trinity. So there's going to be not 25 Sundays, but 24. Not 26, but 24 Sundays in Trinity. Something to that effect. Because as Easter moves, the rest of the church calendar, like an accordion, has to either shrink or extend to adjust for Easter. But it all starts with Easter. That uh, annual cycle has, has to do, uh, those, those are movable, you could say, and they're different every year. They fall on different dates. Uh, dates like Ascension. Ascension is always 40 days after Easter, but since, and it's always on a Thursday, therefore, but uh, since Easter keeps moving, ascension can never really be nailed down. You don't say ascension is on a particular date every year. Uh, but that moving along with the time, the proper of time, is a portion of the calendar we would call temporale. But there is uh, another element of the calendar. Um, it involves fixed feast days, sanctorale, or proper of saints. Not all of these dates are uh, in reference to saints, but many, many are. Uh, for instance, December the 6th is the Feast of St. Nicholas. And in this way, it doesn't matter if it's 40 days after this or 20 days before that, or if it's on a Thursday or a Sunday. If it's December the 6th, it's the Feast of St. Nicholas. Likewise, Christmas is a fixed feast according to the Sanctorale calendar. It's always on December 25th. It doesn't have anything to do with Easter. So these two calendars are uh, really always functioning at the same time, fixed feasts and movable feasts. Uh, Remember, we we spoke earlier about three different sacramentaries, which were uh, liturgical books that were developing uh, about a century after there was the freedom for these to develop, or two centuries. The Leonine uh, was the 6th century, the Galatian was the 7th century, and the Gregorian was the 8th century. These all were versions of calendars and means by which the priest would know what feast to observe on which day. Uh, the Galatian sacramentary separated the two calendars and put temporale in one section and sanctorale in the other. And you'll find that if you open your Book of Common Prayer, that a To a large extent, the Book of Common Prayer follows that theme. You'll find that uh, towards the end of the section of propers, there's a bunch of saints and fixed feast days towards the end. And I could probably point to a particular page if you're looking for that. Uh, So, you know, you see here, if we begin on page 200, and let's see, what is the exact page? 226. 
Page 226, halfway down the page, it says, Holy Days, St. Andrew the Apostle, November the 30th, which comes right after Sunday next before Advent. Sunday next before Advent is Temporale. Holy Days, November 30th, St. Andrew the Apostle, is Sanctorale. That's the two different calendars overlapping one another. You'll find the same thing occurring for morning and evening prayer at the front of the Book of Common Prayer in the lectionary. Uh, the Leonine, 6th century and Gregorian sacramentaries shuffled the Temporale and Sanctorale calendars together so that you had fixed feasts and movable feasts sort of shuffled together. And you find that the prayer book did that also. So the prayer book, uh, in a typical Anglican way, didn't choose a side and just went right down the middle. So when you come, uh, for instance, to the Christmas tide season, you'll find that Christmas, while it's a fixed feast, could have been put at the end, it's actually nailed down right there uh, after the season of Advent. But so, likewise, is St. Stephen's Day, St. John the Evangelist, Holy Innocence. Each of those days are fixed feast days, which sort of belong at the end, but they're inserted in the middle. And why can't the Anglicans make up their mind? Well, because we're, we're drawing from several traditions, and we're drawing from actually uh, each of the three uh, sacramentaries, Leonine, Glazian, Gregorian, and shuffling those calendars together, as I just said there. Um, any questions or thoughts about that? I don't know if that uh, clears anything up for you, that section of the prayer book where we're flipping to propers, um, a collect, an epistle, and a gospel for those days. Okay, so when we, when we consider the nature of the Anglican calendar, you find that the Anglican calendar developed, of course, in the 16th century at the Reformation, well, at the Reformation, there was a range of responses to the historic calendar, as there was sort of a, a range of reformations, you could say, moving from, I would say, the Anglican side, which would be fairly reserved, to the continental side, which was fairly extreme at, at different places. So at the Reformation, there were some, the Anabaptist and Puritan groups eliminated the calendar entirely. We wanted the whole thing gone temporally and sanctuarily. No more saints' days. And in fact, they canceled Christmas. Which if you want to get on the good side of young people in the world, canceling Christmas is niet, niet Soviet. Not a good, not a good idea. And so um, when, some of, when, when the Puritans finally had a chance to implement their, their pure uh, religion in the 17th century, it was roundly rejected. Uh, about 10 years later. This is the interregnum period, 1650s to 1660s. And the Anglicans then decided we will never do that again. <laughs> okay, so that was, that's one way. Reform groups uh, kept only feasts with basis in the New Testament. That's feasts such as Christmas, Easter. But you'll find that if you go to a Reformed church, oftentimes you mention the word Lent and uh, the the, uh, the hisses come out. Lent! Well, Lent is all about earning your salvation. We don't earn our salvation because God is sovereign and such, and we don't do Lent. Okay. Um, we don't do Advent. We don't do Pentecost. We don't do uh, these seasons. We might observe feasts in between. I will say that uh, in the last little while, this has been uh, moving. If you go down Pelham Road and see that Baptist church there, there's, it's a Baptist church that advertises Lent. 
or Advent. And, and there's a Presbyterian church on Pelham, too. I drive on Pelham sometimes. And they're also advertising, you know, the fourth Sunday of Lent. Fourth Sunday of Lent? You guys never used to do this. Okay. Everybody's getting on the, getting on the bandwagon now. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, Lutheran and Anglican churches retain not only feasts, but also seasons. Uh, with connection to the biblical record. And so if you look in your Book of Common Prayer, you will find that all of the saints' days that are acknowledged, or all the fixed feast days, have some uh, connection to the New Testament, some connection to the biblical record. But you will not find in the Book of Common Prayer the feast of St. Augustine of Hippo. And why is that? Because St. Augustine of Hippo, wonderful saint as he was, was not... Uh, a figure in the New Testament. And so he didn't appear in the Book of Common Prayer. Um, This was another sort of Anglican middle way. Is that the best way? Well, in the fog of war, it was a way. And it seemed to be in the middle of a radical extreme on one side and a radical extreme on the other. So typical of Anglicanism, we found that, I'll call it a golden mean. We'll call it a mean. How about that? Right down the middle. Uh, So that's... That's partially why your prayer book looks like the way it looks. Um, You remember me saying a little while ago about how the first Book of Common Prayer in 1549 irritated everyone. Because to the Roman Catholics, it was not Catholic enough. And to the, the Protestants, it was way too Catholic. Which is actually a sweet spot right there. When you're irritating everyone, it's a sweet spot, I think. Uh, But... When the 1552 Book of Common Prayer came out, there was a lot of slashing and burning. Thomas Cranmer had basically said, uh, we're going to do whatever the, the radical uh, continental reformers want. And so the prayer book looked much more Protestant in 1552. Just about every revision since then, you remember me saying, has been attempting to put things back in the prayer book that were taken out in 1552. All the way up to today. But beginning with the Oxford movement and the subsequent ritualist movement, this is the 19th century, efforts have been made in the Anglican Church to restore the ancient and broader calendar feast day observances. So you'll find that if you go to a typical Anglican Catholic Church, you will find that you're observing days that you can't find in the Book of Common Prayer. And uh, a couple slides ago I had the, the headline, Where's That in the Bible? Some people are saying, Where's that in the Book of Common Prayer? Well, you have to kind of understand uh, what's going on here. Uh, today, much freedom is given to the rector of the parish to decide which feasts to observe and which feasts to leave aside. Uh, all the way to the point where there are new feasts that have been added in the 20th century after the 1928 Book of Common Prayer came around. For instance, the Feast of Christ the King, which is in late October. Some of our churches observe it even though there's nothing in the Book of Common Prayer, and others don't observe it, and it's really up to the rector. The bishop doesn't clobber anyone for going one way or the other. Um, And so another one, uh, on uh, November the 1st, a fixed feast day is All Saints. November the 2nd is All Souls. Now that's not as uh, early an observance as all saints, but it descended from the idea of all saints. We have a day in which we acknowledge all saints of the church. In other words, those that the church has recognized as saints. And then the next day, all souls, 
is a day in which we simply, you know, at, at our altar, we offer prayer for the peaceful repose of a couple of people, three people. On All Souls, we have a list. It's actually, we're observing it for the first time this year. We have a list on the narthex. We simply, you, we, we pray for all of those uh, loved ones who have departed that we wish to, to, uh, to intercede on behalf of. We're not praying them out of hell and into heaven or something like that. We're simply uh, praying for the continual growth of their souls in Christ. Uh, praying and hoping that they're praying for us too. So that's all souls. It's up to the rector whether he's going to observe it or not. Um, but that's, that's a kind of... Uh, to understand what's really going on with the calendar. Any questions about that before we move on to the collects? Nope. Good. Because we don't have time for your questions anyway. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The collect. Okay, this is interesting. The collect is a prayer with a general internal structure that's used in liturgical settings. Um, there are prayers that fit the, the mode of a collect that aren't called collects. But anyway, th- there's a general structure that's very useful. You might guess, I don't know why we say collect rather than collect. But the word collect means collect. Why do we pronounce it the other way? Some clergyman here knows the answer. I don't know. (laughs) We call it a collect. It's a gathering, a collecting, a gathering of intentions and focus and pleading. Really, the collect is said by the celebrant on behalf of everyone who's present. So he's collecting everyone's prayers. But he's also collecting and enshrining theological doctrines. You remember... uh, the ancient rule, lex arandi, lex credendi, the law of prayer is the law of belief. If you want to know what an Anglican believes, listen closely to what he's praying. And when you hear that prayer, that collect, that is uh, a form sometimes, most of the time, a real theological statement as well. You know, we have the collect for purity, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. That's a statement of belief about the omniscience of God. So uh, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts suggests that he could cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. By the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit uh, is stating that he could breathe into us his Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love thee. It's possible to perfectly love him. These are statements uh, mixed in with our requests. But the structure of a collect, you'll notice that uh, I don't get up and say, oh, I shouldn't do it. <laughs> I don't do extemp- I was going to do an extemporaneous prayer and, and do a silly one. I'm not going to. That's irreverent. So, uh, you notice there are no extemporaneous prayers from the altar. That's not to say that you can't pray an extemporaneous prayer saying, Lord, today we've gathered here and, and uh, we just want to thank you for all of your goodness and loving kindness. And, and we pray that this morning's service would be uh, honoring and glorifying to you. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just not what we do over there in the liturgy. Uh, in the liturgy, we use collects that have structures that begin with something like an invitation. Okay, you might, you might. Uh, I'll just give you all these. The structure. Maybe you've heard this before. You who do to through. Okay, you who do to through. Uh, every once in a while, a colleague will be missing one of these sections, but uh, at the very least, there'll be something like, you, Lord, 
comma. Acknowledgement. Who? Lord, who art uh, always more ready to give than we to, to, uh, to ask. Something like that. You're, first of all, saying who you're praying to. You're, second of all, giving uh, a characteristic of God. You, who, something, something, something. And then the petition. Have mercy upon us is a petition. Aspiration. Let's go back to the, the colic for purity. Uh, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit. That's the request. That we may perfectly love thee. This is what we, we want to happen. We want you to cleanse the thoughts of our hearts so that we perfectly uh, love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That's a good uh, structure for a call. And by the way, if you're ever called on to, to stand up in front of a group of people and wing it, wing a prayer, you can get up and mumble and stumble if you want, but you can have a little structure in your mind and Lord God Almighty, Lord of heaven and earth, have mercy upon us who now suffer here under this storm, whatever the situation is, have mercy upon us that we may always and continually rest in you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That structure, being in the head, is helpful uh, in, in extemporaneous prayers also. So here's some examples. 13th Sunday after Trinity. Almighty and merciful God, you, of whose only gift it cometh that thy faithful people do unto thee true and laudable service, who, grant we beseech thee that we may so faithfully serve thee in this life, do this, that we fail not finally to attain thy heavenly promises to this, so that this will happen. Through the merits of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You see the structure? You, who, do, to, through. Every once in a while you'll have a colic that leaves one portion out. This isn't a law. This is just a, a general uh, a structure of the colic uh, in our Book of Common Prayer. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. You, blessed Lord, cause scriptures to be written for our learning. Who? Do this, please. Grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, uh, learn, and inwardly digest them. So why? That by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a little, you know, anyhow, that's generally speaking, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, yeah, we got time. St. John the Evangelist. Here's another colic. I'm just showing you this structure. Every once in a while, it's a little bit different. Merciful Lord. And then there isn't a sentence that says, who, something, something, something. But you said merciful. So you've, you've, you've already um, assigned uh, a characteristic to the Lord. Merciful Lord, we beseech thee to cast thy bright beams of light upon thy church. Do this. So that What? That it being illumined by the doctrine of thy blessed apostle and evangelist St. John may so walk in the light of thy truth that it may at length attain to life everlasting through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've heard these colics a million times and maybe never thought of the structure, but this is really what's, what's behind the collect.
Any questions about that before I get to a potentially controversial section? <laughs> I'll take that little hat off there. Any, uh, any thoughts about the colics or the structure of, of that colic prayer? Anything about the calendar or nothing yet? All right, the controversial part. And I don't know uh, where a person would get this hat. Got super arrogation? <laughs> I think we should get uh, some of those for the church. Has anyone ever heard the term super arrogation? Good. Well, I'm going to introduce you to it, and, and you'll, have to, you'll have to understand now uh, what that term means and why it's a controversial term. So, while much of the traditional epistle and gospel readings continue according to that which was developed in the early centuries of the church, for instance, when we're reading particular scriptures on particular days, oftentimes those scriptures have been read for well over a thousand years, usually 1,500 years, on this day, this gospel is read. There are weaknesses to this, because by the end of a full church calendar, you will not have read through the Bible in a year. You will not have heard all of the gospel. You would probably have heard, by my estimation, about 7% of the Bible, if all you do is come to church on Sunday morning. Which means you're not supposed to just come to church on Sunday morning, you're supposed to be doing your offices morning and evening prayer or reading scriptures on your own so that you're not simply receiving the same 7% over and over again. You're meant to be uh, filling that out with weekly uh, Bible reading and study. Anyhow, it's interesting to note that many of those scriptures have been read by the whole church at one place or another uh, for well over 1,500 years, according to those sacramentaries. But nevertheless, many collects were changed or completely rewritten in the first Book of Common Prayer, 1549. This was largely done to eliminate doctrines about the saints concerning acts of supererogation and merits applied by the intercession. I'm going to give you some examples of those collects, and then you'll note how the Book of Common Prayer's collects and the, some of the collects from the medieval missals really differ. So we're very proud of the Sarum Missal because so much of the Book of Common Prayer was translated into English directly from the Salisbury Sarum Missal. But what you don't know is the stuff that was left out of the Sarum Missal because it never made it in to the Book of Common Prayer. And so I'll give you some examples of um, some of those types of prayers. So here's a collective difference. For instance, uh, St. Stephen Colleagues of the Book of Common Prayer that refer to saints uh, almost always refer to their example. So, um, for instance, that like St. Stephen, this is the two part of the collect, that like St. Stephen, we would learn to love and bless our persecutors. So we pray on the Feast of St. Stephen. Uh, I don't have the whole collect here, but it's probably something like... Uh, Lord, who art merciful at all times, we beseech thee that like St. Stephen, we would learn to love and bless our persecutors through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a collect. Um, on the feast of St. Philip and St. James, the two part is that following the steps of thy holy apostles, imitating, following their example, St. Philip and St. James, we also may steadfastly walk. So that's a typical Book of Common Prayer uh, kind of collect. 
So here is a, a collect from uh, the missile tradition. It's not actually the missile on our altar, but collects of the missile tradition often speak not so much of the example, but of the efficacy of the merit or intercession of a particular saint to make our prayers acceptable or something like that. So here's from, uh, from one missile uh, a prayer for the feast day of St. Athanasius. Uh, would St. Athanasius have agreed with this? I don't know, but let's see. That... Like as he, St. Athanasius, was found worthy to do the faithful service, so by the succor of his merits, we may be delivered from the bonds of the sins which we have committed through Jesus Christ. That's a substantive theological difference between anything you'd find in the Book of Common Prayer and what you'd find in the Missal. And we're about to have a defense of one or the other here in a second. But you can hear the difference, right? Uh, one says, by the, one would probably say that by the example and great teaching and wonderful courage of St. Athanasius, we too would uh, attain and, and steadfastly uphold right doctrine and find courage in the time of persecution through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is different. This is that by the succor of his merits, we may be delivered from the bonds of the sins which we have committed. That's different. There's atonement there. Uh, here's another one. Uh, for St. Mary Magdalene Penitent. Merciful Father, that's the you who, uh, give us grace due, that we may never presume to sin through the example of any creature, but if it shall chance us at any time to offend thy divine majesty, that then we may truly repent and lament the same after the example of Mary Magdalene. This is in one of the, co- uh, one of the missiles. Through the only merits of thy Son, our Savior Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee, and the Holy Ghost, one God, world without end. Amen. That is the colic for St. Mary Magdalene. But when you get to the uh, post-communion prayer, it sounds like this. Grant, O Lord, that like as thine only begotten Son did graciously accept the oblation of the devout obedience of blessed Mary Magdalene, so her glorious merits may render these our gifts acceptable in thy sight. That's a, that's a sentiment that you wouldn't find in the Book of Common Prayer, but you might find in the Missal. Through the same our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. I'm simply pointing out to you that at the Reformation, when Thomas Cranmer and uh, the other compilers of the Book of Common Prayer were putting this together and translating into English from the Sarum Missal, some things were taken directly over, the scripture readings, many of the colics from the early sacramentaries, but when we come to the, some of the colics for the feast days, they were either entirely rewritten to be about example instead of uh, merit, or, or just adjusted in one way or another. Um, but such prayers of the pre-Reformation are defended by two truths. This is the, sort of the saving grace of, of prayers that, that seem to be quite controversial. Um, Number one, the body of Christ is one body, and all merit is Christ's merit. All righteousness is Christ's righteousness. Our righteousness and our merit is as filthy rags. But if we are united with him, as we say, we are sacramentally bonded to him, and we are united with Christ and united with one another, then truly our merits are actually his merits, because he's doing a work in us. He began a good work in us, and he's finishing it in us, so that any good work that we do, you really can't take credit for, because the Lord is doing a work in you. And that's one way of, of looking at those particular colics. 
And one way that you could sort of justify seeing uh, in the Feast of St. Mary Magdalene both uh, uh, an acknowledgement of the merits of Christ and the acknowledgement of the merits of St. Mary Magdalene. And you say, well, these are contradictory. Well, not necessarily, but it depends on which hat you're wearing and which glasses you're wearing. If you're, uh, well, let's see, the other reason. Most of these prayers conclude with the through by the agency of Jesus Christ, our Lord, so that the merits of so-and-so may uh, sanctify these elements or something like that through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, then you have two agencies there. One is the agency of Christ and one is the agency of Saint so-and-so. And if they're united and they're one and their merits are one, well, it's not as controversial as, as you initially thought. That's the missile mentality. The, I suppose the problem is it's not explicit in the prayer. And it could very easily be misunderstood. And someone could say, well, I'm sure glad that I don't uh, need to rely on the, the, uh, the merits of Christ any longer because uh, he's just so high above me. But I've always related to St. Peter. And St. Peter's kind of my guy. So I'll pray that the merits of St. Peter will, uh, will cause me to be acceptable before the Lord. Ooh, then you, <laughs> then you start scratching the head. So um, that's, that's part of the reason that these uh, colleagues were either removed or rewritten in the 16th century because they had been misunderstood and that theology had been abused. So it's not that it's actually utterly wrong in, a, in itself, but it's so easily misunderstood and so easily abused that the reformers thought, you know what, we're just going to eliminate this altogether. Is that a good thing to do? It's up to you <laughs> to decide. It's actually up to your rector uh, because your rector is going to decide, by the way, and I'm standing up there with this big book in front of me, I have a choice of collects. There's several collects here. There's several post-communion prayers, and there's certain ones that I skip over and other ones that I'll use. And... Uh, it, it, it really has to do with the pastoral philosophy or pastoral care of the particular rector. But the Anglican via media, I think I've probably explained this already, most BCP colleagues for the saints, the Sanctorale calendar, were rewritten in 1549. And most BCP colleagues for the regular season, Temporale, you know, Trinity, etc., are taken from the, the original sacramentaries. So within the Book of Common Prayer, we have <clears throat> probably most of the colics are taken from the truly ancient church, you know, 12 centuries ago, 13 centuries ago. Um, and some of them have been rewritten. This is the nature of the Anglican Reformation, the, or the English Reformation. And you can see now the, the sort of uh, polarization or the spectrum of ways in which the, the Reformation took place. Some said, we're not only going to get rid of that even the mention of that theology, we're going to get rid of all liturgy altogether and all clergy and all ordination and all stained glass windows and all statues and all images. And we're getting rid of everything. It's going to be a fire sale. And actually, it won't even be a sale. We're just going to have a fire. That's it. Okay? Um, others said, wait, 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 wait. There's some good stuff here. Christmas is good. It's the feast of the incarnation. Without incarnation, you've got no Easter. And Easter is self-explanatory. Of course you celebrate Easter. 
And then the, the, the calendar seems to, to fill out from there. But the Anglicans were saying, wait, 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 even more. Actually, most of this is good. And we actually only really have to scrape some barnacles off the ship. We don't have to, to build a whole new ship. That's the nature of the Anglican uh, via media at the time of the Reformation. It was still a fog of war kind of situation there in the 16th century. But likewise, um, most epistle and gospel selections aren't reinvented in the Book of Common Prayer. These are the epistle and gospel, I should say. Yeah, epistle and gospel from the ancient tradition. I think that's all I have for you uh, today. And so we're ready for a few questions. I don't know if that act of... Oh, did I mention supererogation? Supererogation means work that the person has done over and above the merit that they needed to be saved. So um, super ergo, super work. Um, You can go ahead and slash and burn in the crusades because brother so-and-so has prayed triple for what he needs... We'll go into the storehouse of merit. We'll take merit that was uh, earned by him and apply it to you so that you can receive an indulgence for the, things that, the horrible things that you're going to do on this crusade. That was part of the, the logic of, of uh, storehouse of merit and the acts of supererogation. You could do more merit than you needed and someone else could borrow from your merit and apply it to themselves. That's something that the uh, reformers said, uh, I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, uh, any discussion, any comments or questions or thoughts about that? It's, yes, please. Yes, there's a simple way to explain that, which is this. If anyone believes that people don't simply disappear into the ether when they die, it's a Christian. A Christian believes that, in fact, as St. Paul says, uh, he, he couldn't even really distinguish which thing he preferred because to, be, to die is, is, is gain and to be with you is to serve Christ. So what's the difference? In other words... Um, what reason would we have to believe that a person who is closer to Christ than they'd ever been before would have forgotten everyone that they had left behind? In fact, you would, you would believe that if the Holy Spirit was interceding and if Christ was interceding, that those who are close to him would be doing the same thing because they're in Christ. They're closer to him now than they were before. Um, the only reason that you would believe that, there, that, that, uh, that you should completely have a fire sale for all saints is because it had been abused, it could be abused again, and it's better to get rid of it altogether. And that's the mentality of, of portion of the Reformation. And it's just become a family tradition since then. We just don't ever mention saints, and I can't even remember why. You know what I mean? Uh, all I need is Jesus. That's correct. That's correct. That is true. However, the church is the body of Christ. And we believe that there's going to be a reunion 
of the church militant, expectant, and triumphant, we can wait for that one day, but what, what reason do we have to believe that there isn't some efficacious nature of that today? If you ask uh, Daryl to pray for you, and he prays for you, is there a reason that you couldn't ask for someone else who had already uh, Saint so-and-so to pray for you? Unless you believe he can't hear, he can't see, and he's not concerned about you anymore. And that, I think, I think is actually more of a struggle to explain why um, St. Michael couldn't pray for you. If St. Michael was an angel of God sent to defeat the enemy on your behalf, why would he now have no concern whatsoever? That doesn't make sense to me. But the reason... Uh, that the Reformation took such a strong position on that in, the, in, in some branches of the, of the church, I believe, is that people had done what I was saying before, had stopped thinking about Christ because they had so many saints to remember and so many feast days. And there were so many legends of saints so-and-so and so many things to remember about, you know, um, uh, various different saints, so many uh, shrines to visit, so many... Uh, uh, pilgrimages to go on to the to the temple or the uh, the shrine of Saint So and So that they had potentially forgotten Christ. That's what the reformers were saying, but there was a little bit of a fire sale, and part of the Anglican ethos is to say, "Can we get some of that back? <laughs> Can we have some of that back?" Um, so, especially Anglo-Catholicism really says. We need, to, we need to pull this stuff back in. We, need to, we don't need to be divorcing ourselves from, from that uh, sanctorali kind of calendar in Christianity. Any other thoughts or questions about that? Father. I'm shamelessly going to say some of this is covered in my book, which I have copies of. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, thank you, Father Paul. Thank you, everyone. That's enough. We're, we'll be uh, back next week. <laughs>